This time on Watchers of Tomorrow, Star Trek The Music Video! Hello everyone, welcome to Watchers of Tomorrow, the sci-fi review and critique show where we're putting the humanities back into science fiction. My name is Gep and I am joined as always by my friend and flower child, Dr. Izix. Well, man, I'm a flower child. Okay, we just need to cut to the chase on this one because we watched The Way to Eden. I keep wanting to say This Way to Eden. What about That Way to Eden? Because it makes more sense. But yeah. It's just The <laughs> Way to Eden. Well, it is like the path you have to follow, dude. It's how you have to go forward. It is the way. And like, if if anyone remembers this episode, because it seems to be one that you kind of see pictures of, but no one would ever remember, this is the Space Hippie episode. Yep. With, uh, you know, crazy haircuts and music and, uh, you know, love and peace and calling people weird names. Yeah, we have had the weird drug episodes. We've had, like, amb- ambiguous like is this about hippies or is this about communism episodes this is just hippies like straight yep, up just, no yeah. questions asked hippies yeah or i guess more generally counterculture in general about this point of time yeah which was kind of all just shoved into the general hippie idea but star trek was so late mm-hmm. this episode came out in like february of 1969 the hippie movement was on the decline since like 67 so uh in in some ways this is sort of i guess a reaction to the hippies that's just a little slow on the uptake so it's slow and reactionary so slow and so weird i mean we'll get into it We'll, we'll talk more after we sum up things but like I, I don't even know what their stance on hippies is trying to be. Um, yeah, it's a good question, actually. <laughs> They've got such an uncomfortable relationship with countercultural elements because, like, they're so trying to be kind of liberal, but also very establishment, and they don't know where to land, and it's just so awkward. It's like we're accepting and loving but not like these guys. These guys are weird. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I'm reminded of that uh, one bit from uh, Eddie Izzard's stand-up there. Uh, you know, like executive transvestite versus those other folks. <laughs> it's like, that's kind of awkward in retrospect as far as a comedy bit goes, but it's kind of the same vibe. Mm. So this episode was written by Arthur Heinemann. It was based on a story co-written by him and DC Fontana. He wrote several third season episodes um, as well as um, doing co-writing the music in this episode because this is a oh, musical yes. episode. Yes, we have several songs that pop up throughout the uh, the episode and uh, you know, actually I, I kind of like them honestly. <laughs> They're not bad because like so, these were co-written by uh, Heinemann and someone who's credited as girl number one, Deborah Downey. She is credited as girl number one. Um, she was trying to launch like a pop music career and later released some of the songs in this as like a as like singles. Hmm. Oh, kind of cool. And also. Um, uh, as we'll get to Charles uh, Naper, who we've seen in several things, I'll get into that in a second. But he he was a like uh, fairly good 
guitarist, so he was also involved with writing this music. So you had you had actual musicians handling the music for the episode, which is why it is passable. So uh, my stinger at the beginning of you know the the musical episode, the uh, the, the music video, yeah, there's a lot of, lot of actual music in this one. So actually, um, you should look up if anyone's curious. You should look up a song called uh, Golf Trek by Gay Bikers on Acid. That sounds awesome. (laughs) Yeah, Gay Bikers on Acid released a song in 2001 called Golf Trek on their album Everything's Groovy, which is a remix of one of the... I guess it's more of a cover than a remix. It It is a cover of one of the songs in this episode. Something about Nosedive Karma I'm looking at here? <laughs> this, is all, this, this is awesome. I'm going to listen to it after, after Eric finished recording. Yeah, but. If, if we remember by the time this comes out, I'm going to try to put it in the Discord. So, you know, if okay. you don't already <laughs> find our Discord. Hey, we have a Discord, folks. It's pretty sweet. All right, so actors. We've half mentioned some of them, but uh, guest stars in this episode. We have Skip Homer playing Dr. Severin. Yeah, we've seen him before. Yeah, what was he in? I found it in something. Some sort of... So what's the inverse of hippies? <laughs> Fascists, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Using pa- uh, patterns of force, uh, Melicon. Hmm. I missed that in my research somehow. Oh, well. So he played Melicon that I missed. That's why both of us look up things. <laughs> he uh, first came to prominence as a child star playing the role of Skippy in the films tomorrow the world and boys ranch boys ranch yeah boys ranch in the 40s skippy homier or yeah also another movie called mickey hmm. huh it's a whole series why did i not hear about the cinematic universe until just now <laughs> we also have uh mary linda rapelli who's playing irena she uh, was in a variety of guest spots and similar shows and soap operas and things in the 60s and 70s. So she mm-hmm. left TV for a while and then returned in the 80s to do more soap opera runs. And yeah. she's just been mm-hmm. around. Yeah, she's been around. She was also in something called Star Trek New Voyages Phase 2. Ah. Mm, yes, interesting. Yes. Uh, Victor Brandit. I think that's how you say that name. <laughs> Brandt. Victor Brandt. Yeah, Brandt, Brand. I have so much trouble with names. Yeah, he plays Tango Rad, which is just the dumbest alien name we've had so far. I don't know. There's there's some crazy na- aliens out there that we can run into at various points. Mm-hmm. So a successful actor and voice actor with other guest appearances, including Mission Impossible and T.J. Hooker, was also a voice in Superman and Avatar: The Last Airbender, with oh, his yeah. most recent voice credits being in Red Dead Redemption Two. And Netflix's Love, Death, and Robots. It's also in uh, StarCraft II, Legacy of the Void. Oh, and uh, other, he was also a, a, a General Cozy, uh, Crozier in uh, Metalocalypse. Oh. Holy smokes. Nice. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Deborah Dowie playing girl number one. We already talked about her slightly. And then Phyllis Douglas playing girl number two. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't have many lines. Yeah. Phyllis has the... Distinction of being the longest surviving cast member of Gone with the Wind. Yeah, she was uh, Bonnie Boo Butler, age two, uncredited. Yep. So she played a two-year-old in Gone with the Wind, a movie no one will ever see again. Yep. (laughs) 
Uh, she was also in, surprise, surprise, Batman. <laughs> so we got more crossovers with Batman. Ho-ho! <laughs> and uh, your most well-known guest star from this episode is probably Charles Naper, who plays Adam. Mm-hmm. Um, he's been around lots of things, including Star Trek people will know him as the general from Little Green Men in DS9. Oh, yeah. Uh, his first film role... He was cast on a softcore sexploitation film. Oh my. Called Cherry, Harry, and Raquel, made by Russ Meyer, who's well known for making these sorts of films. And he has the distinction of being the first full frontal nude male in a Russ Meyer movie. Huh. <laughs> so I guess if you want to see everything about this guy, uh, check that out. Yeah. <laughs> I was just reading through his filmography. It's like, what is this softcore sexploitation film? <laughs> yep. Um, in, uh, I guess, very different things. Uh, he was also in Buzz Lightyear Star Command. <laughs> not, not nearly as adult, that one. <laughs> no, but surprisingly adult for a Disney <laughs> cartoon show. <laughs> but uh, he was also the sheriff on Squidbillies. Oh, nice. I was so disappointed to learn that they don't have Buzz Lightyear of Star Command on Disney Plus, or I would be subscribed. Oh, man. Give me my Buzz Lightyear of Star Command. I've never been able to find it except for the stupid DVD movie that was the pilot. Mm, So not the entirety of it. Drat. As far as I can tell, they never released a thing on DVD or tape. You can find, like, ripped episodes on YouTube, but it's few and far between. And it's such a good show. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) All right, moving on. And we can go on about Buzz Lightyear Star Command all day. <laughs> it's good. <laughs> Should we do that someday? Probably. Okay. We could at least do the movie. All right. Hmm. So, the Enterprise is in pursuit of a small stolen ship on course for Romulan space. Oh, that hairy bud. He's at it again, isn't he? Probably. Sounds like a thing he'd do. <laughs> they lock tractor beams, but the ship tries to fight them, eventually overloading and forcing them to beam the crew of six on board. Yeah, it's good they were able to uh, beam these folks off right before their ship exploded. They do that a lot. Yeah, yeah. In the transporter room, the space hippies arrive. And they're all like neon and stuff, I guess. Well, I guess yeah. they're not neon, but yeah, c- c- colorful. There we go. Among them is the son of the Kalean ambassador who Kirk has been tasked to treat well, which is why they aren't taking more drastic action against them for stealing spaceships. Yes, and he also has the worst hair of them all. Oh, yeah. Weird, poofy purple hair. So so anyone who's familiar with Babylon 5, think if the Centauri slicked back their hair (laughs) and then dyed it purple. (laughs) Scotty tries to get them to go to the briefing room to meet Kirk, but they are in no mood and sit down and start calling him a Herbert. We've all done that at some point, right? I'm not going to mention every instance of it. But this episode is full of weird, made-up hippie slang. Yeah, you know, it's like space hippies, and you just kind of make it sound like normal hippies, but different words as opposed, but same cadence. But not, yeah, but not like normal hippies. It's like, oh, he's a Herbert. Oh, you're right. He's got a tremble jaw. He's got jelly in the belly. He's scared. It's like, it sounds like an idiot trying to imitate a hippie. Which I guess, if you don't understand hippies, that's kind of how it turns out, you know? Mm-hmm. So Kirk heads down to try to personally deal with this weird situation, and he asks Tango Rad, the ambassador's son, to 
stop participating in all this stuff before he causes an international incident and he's there to like take him home but rad is not hearing it yeah rad's like i'm gonna just kind of do my own thing and ha smock thinks they'll have more luck because he understands feeling alienated in your own culture yeah sure he you know you know it's either you know it's either that or he's secretly a hippie too but you know yeah because as i saw pointed out in several places the guy who willfully misunderstands emotion is going to be the best person to be the go-between with these highly emotional seemingly erratic people well maybe he's i guess able to not react reactive uh, like reflexively to their weirdness i guess maybe i don't or they wanted to give Lenny Nemo more screen time true i think it's that one <laughs> the spock makes a triangle symbol with his hands and declares himself one they all go oh one are you one we're one everyone's one one yeah, one I'm having, I'm having more flashbacks to babylon 5 suddenly uh yeah you, you are the one who was you are the one who is you are the one who will be the oldest man with weird big ears mm-hmm. named Servan or Severin. No, no idea. Severin, uh, yeah. yeah. Close enough. He is the group's leader, and he responds that they are now much more willing to talk because Spock's great, I guess. Turns out they're yeah. looking for a planet called Eden, a mythical place that's perfect for human life that Kirk doesn't believe exists, unlike every other place in the galaxy. Yes. <laughs> There's tons of planets we've already been to that have been described as Eden, and you just want a different one. Yeah. It just happens to be in Romulan space, I guess. In fact, this will come up later, but they have a ton of planets that use the same set. Yes. <laughs> it's very much a copy-paste job, guys. Come on. Kirk refuses their request to take them to this mythical planet in Romulan space and orders them checked into sick bay, but otherwise they don't seem to be much of a threat. Yeah, well, I guess they did run off with that spaceship, and even if you're going to be treating the uh, the ambassador's son like with you know kid gloves, there could just throw the rest of them in the brig, right? He could. We've barely seen a brig on this <laughs> ship. Do they have a brig? Uh, well, they got the room with the force field. Yeah, but they, yeah. They, yeah, it's not much of one. Back on the bridge, Chekhov thinks he recognized one of the hippies' voices when they came on board, and asks if he can go see. So yeah. he does. Spock explains to Kirk what a Herbert is, because they keep calling him that, and Scotty. It's apparently an old official who was known for a very rigid way of thinking. It's also a reference like a, to like a meta uh, gag, because uh, you know, the, uh, there's a, a four-time director named Herb Wallerstein, that, uh, and there's also Herb F. Solo that were kind of being referenced with that. Nah, I thought it was Hoover. <laughs> yep. Not this time. <laughs> in Sick Bay, Chekhov walks in to find Adam playing a song, which he does a lot. Mm-hmm. A lot, a lot. Like, the songs aren't horrible, but they are a good third of the episode. And, uh, so if you enjoy music, you know, it's kind of something to distract from the episode, I guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and if you don't, you can fast forward. Then he sees Irina, an old friend from his academy days. So uh, we have character development for Chekhov. She seems somewhat critical of Chekhov and all of his military career choices, even though she was apparently going to the same thing. And he's critical of her not wanting to pursue a relationship with him. So was this like a deal breaker then in some fashion that he didn't quit as well? No idea. He just, you didn't come back. She goes, why would I? You're an idiot. No, she doesn't do that. That would be better. (laughs) 
Yeah, it's it's a little weird, and this relationship doesn't make a whole lot of sense, especially what we already kind of know about Chekhov and his personality. Chekhov's personality completely changes in this episode because for some yep. reason they wanted him to be the one who was against the countercultural stuff. Maybe mm-hmm. as because he's the youngest character who's supposed to appeal to the youth, they want him to be the one who refutes it. Yeah, and yeah, it's it's so forced. It's just like okay, we're just gonna completely change his character and. Don't worry about it, guys. Just follow what we're trying to say this episode and uh, use him as your personal stand-in. Mm-hmm. Resist all the the, the the evils of peace and love. So Chekhov leaves in a bit of a huff, and there's a protest happening in the hallway outside. Well, it's about time they had one of these on the Enterprise. Yeah, it's a mutiny. About time. <laughs> all the hippies are chanting to free Dr. Sovereign. Inside, McCoy explains that Sovereign's been resisting his checkup, which is why he's locked in sickbay, but then they found out that he was resisting because he has a rare disease called Synthococcus novi. Say that ten times fast. Something (laughs) that McCoy claims has spawned as a response to their overly clean and clinical way of living. So it's like a weird allergy then? Or something. Yeah, no. they never explain it. It's just it's it's because we're too good at medicine now, and so we've our, our bodies have allowed this new superbug to develop that doesn't kill us, but will well, kill it anyone kills else. Some people, yeah. <laughs> Sovereign's a carrier. He doesn't get sick, but he can infect other people, and he outright denies and doesn't accept the diagnosis. Yeah, it's quite a manageable disease, apparently, if you're on a developed world, but it would be disastrous if he went to one of these remote planets like the one he's trying to get to. Because if there's anybody there locally, they're, and they you know, don't happen to have all the medications to cure this thing, you're just going to go in there and kill everyone with your disease guy. There are a few scenes after this of the hippies trying to incite the crew to disaffect, as Scotty says. And the crew is kind of like, well, we're kind of making friends, I guess, but we're not really rebelling. They're giving uh, people flowers. Yeah. Which is horrible and dangerous and a <laughs> felony, apparently. He brings us love. Oh, no, break its legs. <laughs> Kirk tries to get Servan to control his people, but he claims to have no influence over them and describes his dissatisfaction with the modern, clean world controlled by computers that spawned his illness. It seems like a fairly legitimate gripe, honestly. Like, the way y'all live created a disease that I'm saddled with. So, uh, screw you guys. I'm, I'm angry. Later, Spock and McCoy apparently had a consort and decided that Servant is undoubtedly insane. Dun, 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 for whatever that means this week. Yeah, this is going to be interesting later. Uh, but Spock has interest in this movement and asks if he can, out of interest, of course, borrow Chekhov and find this Eden place. Well, I, I guess if we're going to be dealing with them, it might be a good idea to know where they're going in case they happen to, like, I don't know, sneak off or something like that, right? Yeah, could be. So he gets to do that. Adam very briefly interrupts him while he's working to bond over their love of instruments and music and asks if he and the others can hold a concert on the ship to give them something to do. Spock says he'll look into it and probably, yeah. Well, Spock likes to jam occasionally, so yeah, yeah he's kind of, you know, keen on this. In auxiliary control, a room that they should not have, if we're being honest. It's always trouble. 
Yeah, it's just caused so much trouble. Chekhov is interrupted in his working with Spock by Irina, who lightly interrogates him about what he's doing. And he just goes, oh, see, we're using star charts to find this planet you wanted to go to. And if we found it, any idiot would be able to basically take over and drive the entire ship from here with absolutely no training because the computers will tell them what to do. Indeed. So, you know, don't do that. Great, just casual conversation piece there it's like yeah you want to know how to take over the ship old friend there's some basic things about information security that Chekhov should really know loose lips sink starships yeah it's like it's not even that it's like don't give away all sorts of random information that is of no relevance to anyone that's not like supposed to be there it's like Ah. <sighs> anyway. She very happily relays all of this back to the hippie group, as well as all the other hippies reporting on how they're convincing members of the crew to be sympathetic to their cause. So are we going to have a whole uh, plot where they get a bunch of uh, crew members to uh, uh, disaffect their cause? They should. I mean, the turning the Enterprise into a floating hippie commune sounds like a really good plot. But that's not where we're going. Later, Adam and some of the hippies, including girl number one, girl number two, and even eventually <laughs> Spock. <laughs> Good old girl number one. She's the best. She's got a yes. round thing with strings on it. Supposedly an instrument. Yeah, I, it, I guess it's supposed to be like a space tambourine. Yeah, they have a concert with a lot of singing. Several songs. Everyone on the ship seems to be jamming out to it except the senior staff. But Scotty comments that at least they know where these untrustworthy hippie types are so that they can keep an eye on them. <sighs> Scotty, you're supposed to be the good one here. It would also be really embarrassing if we suddenly caught, cut to Severin and the rest of them who weren't singing taking over auxiliary control. Whoops, um... I guess our musical distraction interlude is a, a musical distraction. So Kirk and the bridge panics, but they can't do anything because Servan threatens to destroy the ship if they try to get him out of auxiliary control. And apparently auxiliary control overrides main control 100% of the time. Hmm. This just seems like a major design flaw, you know? <laughs> yeah. It's like, why don't you just, why, why don't you just make auxiliary control the main bridge? <laughs> Why isn't auxiliary control auxiliary? Like, if, if the main controls are working, why can you turn this thing on and take over? I don't know. And where's tertiary control? You always have to have your secondary backups. Come on, guys. <laughs> they set course for Eden that Spock and the computer found earlier in Romulan space. So now they know where they're going. I hope we don't run into any Romulans on our way there. Yeah, so do they. But, you know, they didn't want to pay for an extra model, I guess. So we're safe, at least. <laughs> Spock tries to convince Adam and the others to abandon Severin with a bit of a speech on how he agrees with what they want, but not what Severin wants. But they don't yeah, care. So this guy that you've kind of like gotten all like chummy with and uh, you know basically worship the ground that you know, he walks on, yeah, he's you should just betray him suddenly. Yeah. 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 Oh, that didn't work. Okay. <laughs> they all begin making plans to get off the ship when they arrive at Eden uh, Sovereign, apparently. They keep calling him doctor because he's got like a doctorate in sound engineering something or other ish <laughs> thing. Yeah, he, he's gonna, he, he's all about the the the, 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 the tapestry of sound and, and waves and acoustics. And he's going to put the sound in your face, man. Yeah, they kept mentioning that he had some kind of thing, sound scientist thing. And then they all started jamming out to the music. And I'm like, oh, my God, he's hypnotizing them with his sound powers. 
That would be kind of awesome, actually. But no, he's setting up a really loud noise. Oh, well, that's just kind of lame. Yeah, his whole plan is to make a loud noise, and then they can run away while everyone's hurt by the really loud noise. Yeah, and it's like so loud it could potentially kill people. So they knock everyone out with a loud noise, and then Kirk and Spock come to for some reason just in time to turn it off before it hurts them anymore. So uh, apparently there wasn't a massive, uh, you know, series of deaths all over the ship. As far as we know. Yeah, they don't really address that question. Yeah, but the hippies and one of their shuttlecraft are gone. Oh no, the Galileo too! They beam down to a very, very familiar looking planet with woods and a lake and idyllic pine foresty looking stuff everywhere. Yeah, and uh, some random bushes, you know, the rest of the uh, various props they can put together to make another set. They spread out. Chekhov screams as he touches a plant and his hand is covered in blisters. Serves you right, Chekhov. Stop touching everything. Yeah, this is not your planet. This is not your stuff. You're in Romulan space, so don't be surprised if it's hostile. How many times do they beam down to some place and just start touching stuff? (laughs) Stop touching everything. Yeah, try try scanning at first, maybe. McCoy scans the plants, finds they're filled with acid. Oh, well... Either this is going to be a very deadly planet or a very fun planet. <laughs> Even the grass is filled with acid. Is this where the, the aliens come from, the, from the alien franchise? Well, I mean, what kind of stupid, heavy-handed metaphors? The grass is filled with acid. <laughs> but don't worry. Their clothes will protect them from the acid. So, uh, minimum protection, I guess? But you know yeah. how they are wearing good military clothes, and the hippies are wearing less clothes, their clothes are protecting them from the dangerous planet. Because they wear shoes, not like the stupid hippies. So, uh, yeah, so their feet might be hurting at this point. They find Adam dead. Oh no, our musical accompaniment is over. Yeah, he apparently ate one of the fruits that was also poisonous. Wait a minute, I think there's a metaphor about some sort of garden place here maybe maybe adam eden i don't know it's just not it's not ringing any bells today they find the rest of the hippies hiding inside of the shuttlecraft they all have some degree of burns especially on their feet uh, sovereign refuses to leave and runs off to a fruit tree not listening to any of their warnings and eats it and dies instantly well that was kind of dumb back on the enterprise they've reached uh the star base where they were trying to take everyone finally and they're ready to beam the hippies over. Kirk gives Chekhov permission to say goodbye, but Irina beats him to it and arrives on the bridge right before he can leave. They have a nice kind of okay goodbye where they both acknowledge that they have different worldviews that maybe have some amount of merit. And Spock tells her that he hopes that they will continue their search for Eden or make their own. Yeah, because the one you found kind of sucks. Yeah, it did. Do-do-do. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. That was something. It's so confused. <laughs> <laughs> so I think this is, as I kind of mentioned earlier, an example of people trying to do an episode with hippies that don't get what that's all about. Yeah. 
So what is it all about? Is it because what's interesting to me is every time we've covered hippies, I did, I was able to do a bit better this time. So I have some things finally. But every time I've had to cover hippies or seen anything about hippies or read up on hippies, it's impossible to sort through the like fifty some odd years of propaganda that people have layered on top of this movement to get mm-hmm. to any kind of thing of what they were actually advocating. So so. I, I guess where I was going to kind of start is that, you know, hippies in general are kind of a part of a counterculture movement that was uh, popping up in the 60s. And counterculture movements are things that kind of happen occasionally. And to a certain degree, there's kind of almost always one present. It just sometimes is a lot more obvious than other times. Um, it's an actual subculture. It's not really a movement in the same way as like protests and activism. Um, A lot of that got folded in later, but in fact, Mm -hmm. the stuff that hippies are really, really known for and associated with now, which is things like Vietnam War protesting and a certain amount of like civil rights uh, solidarity were things that were put in after the fact. The the movement itself, the subculture had existed for several years before Vietnam protests began. Yeah, before that sort of became the thing that they are known kind of being associated with. But there is, I guess, to a certain degree, that the integration of those two ideas is sort of how, I guess, the greater society began paying attention to them in the first place, as opposed to, like, all oh, those just some weirdos over there. Yeah, and I think that we need to bring in some cultural context. Because one of the things that I hit when I was researching hippies generally, we, as people who grew up post-hippies, have almost no conception of exactly how locked down and conservative and controlled American life was in the 1950s. Mm -hmm. This was the era of the McCarthy... Un-American Activities Committees. Talked about that before. This was the the uh, Kofer hearings on juvenile delinquency, which introduced the comic book code. And mm-hmm. this was when you had like the Hayes Code in television. There was just this this real obsession with control, appearance, and morality in America. So you have to conform to this particular set of you know standards. And if you do not, we're going to do everything in our power to basically rid you from our society. Yes. And this is one of the things that's so difficult to understand through a modern context. Because one thing that everyone knows about hippies is the hair thing. Mm -hmm. That they had long hair. Because that became such an important signifier for not getting a haircut. Growing your hair out at all. We're not talking about long hair like you see in the documentaries. We're talking about like early Beatles hair, like Chekhov's hair. Yes. <laughs> that was considered like edgy at the time. Yeah, that was like ridiculously long hair on a man. The mm-hmm. very fact that having hair that length was so shocking kind of gives you some understanding of just how dictatorial the decency standards of the 50s were becoming. This was really America's first foray into fascist ideologies. It's like, we will control every aspect of your life 
through a like imposed morality filter. And if you don't like it, well, we're going to uh you know, label you a communist and put you in jail or something. Yeah, they even they had ways to like arrest and seek out dissidents. And they kept getting more because one of the long-standing things that actually came out of the hippie movement is our weirdly dictatorial drug laws. Mm-hmm. Because drug yes. use, especially marijuana and hallucinogens, became so associated with the counterculture movement that they started using that as a way to try to control the hippie ideology. Because you can't, at least even like then and now, it's still like we have enough safeguards in place in the U.S. that you're basically not allowed to make laws controlling people's ideologies. Mm-hmm. But you can punish the things around them. Though in the 1940s, you still had uh, some like an- like anti-American laws, like speaking out against the government or the war was illegal. So you did have certain fascist laws that did exist prior to the 50s um, when like they didn't stand up to direct challenge in our own legal system. So I'll give our legal system some credit there. But yes. we we were definitely as Americans making a very direct foray into very, very strict kind of fascist ideas in the 1950s. So uh, we just beat the Nazis. Let's uh, kind of do everything that they were doing, except the whole invade everyone yeah except we're gonna kind of do that except we do that too (laughs) so it's it's a very very difficult mindset to get yourself in as anyone who grew up after the 1960s and 70s because that that kind of extreme moralism just doesn't exist in america anymore because of this exact countercultural movement. The one thing that everyone mm-hmm. says about hippies is that it was unsustainable as a group, but they didn't have, they weren't trying to like set up a new nation. Communes and things started popping up all over, and those were forcibly failed most of the time. Like they mm-hmm. worked fine for a bit, but they didn't get proper support and they were cut off. And there uh, are a lot of critiques over how it was too much of a kind of youth driven movement. And they didn't have like proper people around who had more experience to help them organize things. But it wasn't particularly like, you know, a movement like we have now with like Black Lives Matter or any of our like current protest movements happening. It wasn't that organized. It was just a spontaneous subculture. I guess to uh, make a comparison, it's like uh, goths, gamers and furries. Yeah, if your goths, gamers, and furries, your GGF, all got together and started like t- taking over San Francisco parks, which would be something to see, you'd have yes. basically the same thing. A whole mishmash of stuff kind of coming together, and just kind of everybody's getting into it for a while. We need to get the Nazis out of the gamer thing first, but yeah. Well, you know, that's why the I had the other two coming in. Yeah. They're going to help them out. <laughs> <laughs> but the the movement itself, if you actually just look at the stark contrast in how we treated America in the 1950s versus now, it was wildly successful. Mm-hmm. Like we we have been living under the influence of this of this sea change brought on by the countercultural movement our entire lives, so it's difficult to see. But the very fact that we can sit here and talk about it, me with like shoulder-length hair, and it's not commented on, 
like many people give me compliments on it in fact like it's never been the thing i've had long hair most of my life it's never been something that was commented on and the acceptance of more lgbt rights and like uh, most of our current political movements that are gaining more rights and acceptance are because of this countercultural movement in the 60s it's sort of like the initial spark that has kind of been slowly burning and uh, you know and uh, activating energies throughout our society but i would be remiss some of it's getting folded back in and i'm giving it a lot mm -hmm. of praise um this was only in white america yep not to say white that people. there were not like other people involved or interested in the hippie movement but it was a predominantly white movement it did not really advocate for or have much to do with marginalized groups and civil mm -hmm. rights like the summer of love was like a horrendously bad time for African Americans in America. There were like police lockdowns and murders and just too much stuff to go into right now without having like yes. a dedicated episode for it. But we were we were basically ignoring everything else that was happening to, you know, anyone who wasn't white in America at the time to focus on this hippie thing. As I sort of mentioned before, or there is still in the larger culture that was trying to, you know, sort of being against this, this, uh, you know, this sort of movement, uh, this idea uh, of, of what the hippies were sort of, they thinking up representing, they were, you know, more than happy to sort of, you know, add everything in uh, to, to, you know, after the fact, it's like, oh yeah, they're also for the civil rights movement. And, but that wasn't really the thing. So. Yeah. There wasn't a conceited, like, civil rights movement thing there were isolated thing incidents like people there was a certain amount of crossover but they never mm -hmm. meshed there wasn't solidarity between these ideas the yes. the entire cultural identity that we have of hippies as like primarily activists is just incorrect yeah yeah it's it's, it's sort of i guess some fraction of it sort of became that later on but not like in the core things when it's in full swing and like from what i could tell a lot of this was basically just the straight up fact that you were living in something that was just as controlled and morality focused as like victorian era england <laughs> with that level of sexual repression but you also had the baby boom so you had several million teenagers turning like 16 to 18 around the same time and they're kind of like well our society is kind of awkward and we're really horny so yeah. this seems like a fun thing to do yeah you're not going to be able to sexually repress that many teenagers who outnumber you and so uh, a little bit of uh, free loving started happening now this was incredibly dangerous to the establishment of the time because they were trying to be so dictatorial um a lot of the advocation for this was leaning more communist, which we had a big problem with, still do. And uh, it was very forcibly put down. Like, it, if oh. people talk about how it collapsed under its own weight, which to a certain extent is true because they didn't really have proper leadership, it wasn't deliberately organized, but there was also a lot of external pressure. You've seen, like, this is where you get the, like, um, you know, military police shootings of college kids because they're like having hippie sit-ins and things so it's it's harsh crackdowns that were very much over the top 
you know, and, uh, you know, like you already mentioned, you know, the sort of communes and things like that being sort of isolated and prevented from interacting with great society. And so they kind of, you know, it's like, well, we can't get water here. So I guess we have to leave. Yeah. And of course you can't have a like fully functional self-isolated society in the middle of a park in San Francisco. Mm hmm. So, of course, it collapsed under its own stresses because it was cut off from everything and forced to. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's the, the, the greater society was very, very eager to isolate and box in these folks. Well, there's uh, one other major thing that I feel like we probably need to bring up. And I read several things about this as well. People, people kind of agree with this take that yeah. uh, Servran, Dr. Servran, is a pretty obvious stand-in for another famous countercultural figure um is his, is his name tim yeah and the last name's with an l or something right something about also ellis and the s and the d maybe so zoran's very very obviously a stand-in for timothy leary who became very famously a leader of the kind of countercultural hippie movement not exactly but famously <laughs> not factually <laughs> Yeah, an important figure that had influence, but not necessarily a leader. Yeah, he started doing more stuff. So I'm going to say some complimentary things about him in a minute, but I want to preface this. Like, this is in historical context. He did several things that were, like, varying degrees of interesting to weird, but he was an asshole. Yeah. He was, like, <laughs> a, he was a horrible, horrible, horrible human being. Um, he was kind of an attention seeker. He definitely had a lot of past trauma. Um, I'm don't I try really hard not to call anyone out as like evil, but he did not examine his actions and how they hurt the people around him. Yes. So he was he was basically horrible to his multiple multiple wives and children, and like yeah, his his yeah. first wife was basically driven to suicide by being married to him. He was not a good person. He has a long and uh, complicated history, you could say. Uh, you know, you know, involved in uh, some prison experiments and uh, getting you know tests together to sort of, you know, uh, you know, in the in sort of the development of incarceration, which he then later made use of when he was in, uh, in prison, right? Yeah, he was a incredibly well known clinical psychologist. He had a doctorate mm -hmm. in clinical psychology, and he was a professor at Berkeley before his wife committed suicide and he kind of dropped out of society for a bit, wound up in Mexico. A colleague introduced him to hallucinogenic mushrooms when he later wound up doing research at uh, Harvard, of all places. Harvard sucks. <laughs> he started doing a lot of... It was a, It was a really weird mix. And anyone who's looked into LSD, especially around this time period, knows how just outright weird psychological experiments of the 60s and 70s were. Mm -hmm. there, there was a lot of stuff of like, let's just give someone LSD in this situation and see what happens. Yeah, so, uh, well, that was interesting. Um, well, at least they didn't hurt themselves this time. So yeah, stuff ranged from, this, this one wasn't him, but there was like a fairly famous psychological experiment from the time period where they like, got a bunch of people on a boat to see if they would all like revert to 
base urges and start having a ton of sex on this long isolated boat journey. <laughs> that was the level of psychological research of the time, just for context. I guess to a certain degree, it's like someone has a weird fantasy and they're like, maybe this is a real thing that could happen if I engineer the right situation. Yeah, this is the time period where they were giving a dolphin LSD to see if they could teach it English. Yep. <laughs> so that wasn't that wasn't Leary, though. Leary yeah. had a mix of good and bad experiments, uh, iffy experimental uh, methodology, which everyone had at this time period. Um, one of the most famous ones was actually thought of by one of his grad students, go figure, um, involved giving people LSD in a religious setting. Like they took a lot of theology students and gave them LSD in a church to see if they could induce yeah. religious experiences, which worked. Surprise. <laughs> so actually a lot of stuff that we know about hallucinogenic drugs comes from these experiments. And they were, they were very successful experiments. They even treated successfully things like alcoholism, long-term abuse. There was an experiment involving prison recidivism where he was able to drop mm -hmm. people in his experimental group from a 60% recidivism rate down to a 20% recidivism rate. Yeah, there was, you know, critiques of that study, but, you know, even on the, you know, sort of the first pass there, it's sort of like, well, that's actually pretty good. There's some interesting results for one small study that was never replicated, but. Yeah. Well, there's also some additional things uh, they were sort of tying in there that, you know, sort of a, you know, a Alcoholics Anonymous sort of vibe as far as, you know, the post-prison uh, phase of that. But yeah. Yeah. But, you know, can't, uh, can't win them all. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's just, prison recidivism is too complicated a subject to get into, but you can't study it in isolation like that. It doesn't work out. There's too many things. Yeah. You basically have to have a large, uh, massive sample and pay attention to every detail. Mm. And, uh, yeah, there's not going to be likely a massive, you know, uh, you know, I guess pardoning of, you know, thousands or even millions of people unless we get our heads out of our asses about drug laws in the U.S. But anyway. <laughs> so basically, um, he was doing all this research. He got in a lot of trouble for pressuring grad students to take LSD and also for giving students LSD in his personal time. Uh, so he got in some pretty legitimate hot water. At Harvard, Indeed. when he resigned, one of his colleagues was fired. He resigned. I thought he was fired, but okay. <laughs> he talked up himself being fired because it added ah. to his prestige, but he quit. Then he yeah. started basically advocating for LSD use in more of a spiritual context. He became basically America's first drug guru. Yeah, was this uh, the, uh, what was it, uh, like, uh, tune, uh, turn on, tune in, drop out? Yeah, that was a little later, but basically that kind of thing. Uh, hippie culture developed around him, not as a direct result of anything he was doing. It just happened around the same time. They also started using hallucinogenic drugs in a spiritual way. They tried to merge early on. It didn't quite work out because he was still doing it in an actual good way. He developed something called set and setting, which is this very, very important idea among hallucinogens that... Um, what you're thinking about and where you take them is vitally important to the experience you will have, as mm -hmm. opposed to just randomly, casually taking it in a park somewhere to see the pretty colors. Yeah, so if you want to have a certain sort of experience, you have to basically be smart about how you get started. But he was advocating that. Then later on, um, he just started becoming more and more famous and getting kind of into the fame aspect and let himself become sort of a de facto leader of certain parts of hippie groups. And because he was this like 
well-respected ex-psychologist who used to work at Berkeley and Harvard, they basically targeted him as one of the hippie movement leaders. Uh, even mm-hmm. at certain points, Richard, Richard Nixon called him the most dangerous man in America. But that's me. <laughs> <laughs> and he had some really crummy ideas, and he was being an attention grabber. But they, they used him as a stand-in for the hippie movement, generally started criticizing him personally, and used that to attack kind of the greater movement around him because they just assigned him a leadership position that he did not actually have. Exactly. So it's sort of uh, the f- sort of fallacy that's related to this, the straw man, where mm-hmm. you basically uh, c- you know uh, promote a element in what you're trying to destroy or fight against, and make that the f- sole focus. So all the flaws and you know, you know negative effects of that one element are now being you know you know projected onto the rest of the movement that you're fighting. Uh, independent on if this is at all true or not, and so you're able to, to you know convince people to oppose the, the larger coalition uh, of folks that are sort of you know into a you know into whatever you know just on that one element. And many of his contemporaries fairly legitimately point to him and his outspoken, freewheeling advocacy of LSD and other hallucinogens as the reason that these actually very very kind of inane drugs got um got put into our main like you know section one narcotics do not touch and that's the reason that like psychedelic research has stagnated for so long and is only just now starting to come back to the public consciousness indeed so uh but in fact um psilocybin and lsd and other hallucinogens are like the safest drug yeah. <laughs> it is like physically impossible to overdose on them and they have no side no like negative side effects as far as we can tell at least physical ones you can like you can in fact have like a bad trip and become somewhat traumatized but even in the context of being traumatized it's it's more in the like learning experience thing if you do them correctly and like have someone who knows what they're doing there's basically no downsides at all to taking the things except for some of them may cause a certain amount of heart distress that you need to look out for if you have a vulnerability so i guess i probably should avoid it myself because you know you know i've got family with you know heart issues but you know and that depends that's something like ecstasy which puts a lot of strain on your heart i don't think psilocybin has the same effects i've known people who take ecstasy and i can never pronounce it properly <laughs> so basically that's one of the reasons that and the countercultural thing is why these very very useful drugs that could have led us down a very different and possibly more helpful route of clinical psychology got outlawed in the 60s because they needed their uh their, their leverage in order to uh put down this spooky group of people with long hair. But of course, Star Trek's critique of this is the grass is full of acid and it kills you. Oh man, they forgot to Kool-Aid the, the test the grass, wait. <laughs> that was the other thing, the frickin', uh, like people were citing in some things I was reading, the, the anti-drug propaganda films of this era. They're, they're really something, aren't they? <laughs> going forward, even, they're full of such blatantly obvious lies that they had exactly the opposite effect that they wanted. So you're saying is that this is what's going to happen if I take this drug that I've already taken. <clears throat> um, so that 
and I know it's not true, so screw you guys. I'm just yeah. going to keep ignoring you. Like, if you're telling me that one hit of marijuana drives you insane and start and you start, like, killing people around you, but I have several friends who are high every day, and they don't do that, what else are you lying to me blatantly about? Exactly. It kind of, kind of has it builds up this weird trust dynamic that is just kind of counterproductive to what they're actually trying to do. And so, yeah, no one get you know really pays it any attention anymore. I've been monopolizing things. I only had like one other tiny thing to mention, but we can get into that later because it doesn't have anything to do with the actual hippies. Well, uh, something. Yeah, you know, I guess there was the uh, the the inverse of our uh, our, our Tim- Timothy Leary sort of in the same sort of time period. That technically sort of I guess became a little bit more well known after this episode came out. But uh, there there's another figure from around the same time that. Uh, I guess was sort of used as another sort of uh, stand-in for the evils of the hippies. Cheech and Chong? No, but this st- his name does start with a C. <laughs> any, any guesses? Che Guevara? Right, uh, no, no, no. Yeah, no, just put him on T-shirts, man. <laughs> no, uh, the the person I'm talking about is Charles Manson. Ah, yes, Manson. Yes, because uh, in this episode, uh, Severin is sort of used as this charismatic leader sort of figure and that's kind of what manson was trying to do and manson well let's just say if timothy leary was a bad man charles manson is that squared so like double triple dog evilness yeah so uh he basically started a sort of commune thing uh in the mid 60s that uh where he sort of advocated for kicking off a race war and got some of his folks uh, that were sort of in on his uh, little clubhouse there to go out and kill a bunch of people and try to, you know, you know, you know, make it look like it was, you know, the, the, the starting salvos of that sort of conflict. And eventually he was, uh, you know, you know, picked up along with the, uh, the other, inst- you know, uh, you know, uh, people in- involved there and put on trial and put in jail for a very, very long time. And he, is a despicable character, uh, but also kind of an interesting one, especially in terms of how he sort of, I guess, captured the attention of the nation and that sort of stuff. You know, sort of a, uh, he's like, well, this guy is leading a doomsday cult and he's like in a commune. So he's like this hippies and he's, he's obviously up to no good and he's advocating for mass murders and things like that. And so, once again, like with Leary, he's uh, you know, sort of sometimes cited as a in an attempt to you know, you know discredit this mo- you know, greater movement, even though the attachment between him and hippies in general is very tenuous at best. But because he's sort of this unusual person doing an unusual thing with some of the trappings of of, of the the hippiness there, uh, he's very much sort of still tied in to that sort of uh, you know greater. Uh, greater movement yeah he had long hair and lived in mm-hmm. a commune he, he was running a sex cult yeah yeah uh, he, he was like you know sex cult and he's doing you know he was arrested for a couple times uh uh at least one of those times he was like being a pimp at the time and yeah it's yeah, i don't remember the entirety of uh his uh his his rap sheet but it's it's rather complicated well, the thing is apart from like it's interesting how he gets tied in to the hippie thing, just because anything around that time period that 
Americans didn't like gets to get tied into the hippie thing mm-hmm. as the like, you know, countercultural, oh my god, look what they're doing thing. But we we have him as this basically stand in for like metaphorical evil. Yeah. Uh, he's really not that different than any other textbook abuser. Yep. He was a little more generalized with it because of the cult thing and the way he recruited people. He had his little group more isolated than most abusers get to. And he was able to have more influence and control over them. But the methods that he used and the way that he groomed people and the people that he recruited as like young, disaffected people who were like sometimes runaways, sometimes had been in abusive situations themselves, the people, the way that he recruited people and the way that he manipulated people and coerced people is so just textbook abusive relationships. So he's not really that much more of that than any other abuser that we basically don't care about. And something that we really, really don't talk about at all is the number of times and how common it is for someone who is in an abusive situation like that to be coerced into committing abuses themselves, Mm -hmm. either to protect themselves or because they were coerced so heavily. And uh, like, there's plenty of stories of like people in sex cults and abusive, um, like forced sex work situations, like being forced to like recruit other women or attack people. So this is something that exists. He is his got exposed and got linked to some other things that we didn't like. I'm not excusing anything he did, but calling him like the ultimate incarnation of evil kind of ignores that this is a pervasive problem that exists in society already and when we don't exactly. call it out we don't think of it as this same kind of monstrous thing this is a something that was you know you know popularized because of how it could be used to make people beyond manson and his you know core group there look uh, worse and that's a little ridiculous and then modern day there's still stuff like this going down there's yeah there a few years back in uh you know uh, how um it was uh, Cleveland I believe uh they found a basically a similar sort of situation where a couple of abusers a couple of predators had basically kept a couple of women in their basement for like a whole like dozens of years and no one was you know aware of the you know the, the situation until one of them barely managed to escape and you know, there was a there's a whole uh, you know hoopla there, but you don't see that incident really being talked about still because it's like oh this is just some crazy person uh, and they're you know and they're doing their evil over here, but they're not important. They're not you know not not an example we can make use of. Yeah, and he wasn't as you got this nice charismatic guy that you could point to, and it was actually like historically it was one of the first times that we tried someone who did not like directly commit murders so it was like he was like the first american serial killer who never actually killed anyone okay you know, boy it's i'm just going to suggest that maybe these people should die but i'm not going to tell you to do it but you know how i feel about this situation don't you but yeah because we could link him into ridiculously link him into because as we said the hippies were not like super involved in things like civil rights but starting a race war was not really on the agenda for them nope so you took this guy who's like 
outspokenly white supremacist mm -hmm. and folded him into this other movement, even though you agree with the white supremacy as a like dictatorial American nation, but you're going to like use him as a representational scapegoat of this other thing that you're against because it's more out of line with your white supremacy. So, you know, we, 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 we can't, we, we can't condemn his wands, but we will condemn his methods. Yeah. So yeah. remember when we used to condemn the methods of white supremacists? Yeah, that was nice. <sighs> this year sucks. Anyway. <laughs> All right. I only had like one other small thing. That's like a lot lighter. <laughs> okay, go for, go for, go for lightness. So the ending, I, I saw this. I saw several people comment that the ending was almost Twilight Zoney. In the the Eden planet is deadly to life, but like it's, it is if you completely misunderstand the subtlety that you need to pull off something like that. <laughs> <laughs> but I was thinking about this, and I was actually reminded by someone else who read this this same book. I'm going to mention. Um, the uh, this whole like a planet that is just hostile to life you're there for five minutes you go this planet is too hostile to human life everything's bad well one you beamed down to like one tiny area you don't know that every plant on the planet is this true um, but also you just stayed there for a minute went no and then yeeted out of there but the uh, thing that this reminded me of is this book that i'd read a long time ago it's actually a a science fiction children's book from the 80s which is actually kind of unusual uh it's called the green book by jill walsh green book not that green book different green oh. book <laughs> and it's about a group of i'd forgotten this part uh, i thought of them as just off-world settlers apparently they're like refugees from a dying earth but it's about one of, like a one of the first human extraplanetary colonizations they get to this new planet, and once there, they discover that the planet is basically hostile to human life. Like, they can breathe and everything, but all the plant life is weirdly silicon-based and kind of glassy. Even the stuff that they brought and grow, something about the soil makes their wheat grow in sort of the silicon sort of grass, like, glassy, grassy thing that's like, you, you can't eat it. It's, it's glass. Yeah, there's 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 something that's been you know modified about it from its interaction with the environment. Hmm. So basically, they're running out of food because they can't grow anything and their provisions are running out. And then eventually, they just figure out how to do stuff. I don't want to completely spoil the ending in case someone does want to read it. It's written for ten year olds, so keep that in mind if you look it up. But just through experimentation and thinking about the environment, they are able to adapt themselves to how to live here and the colony becomes successful. Yeah, sometimes it's not the world that must change, it is you. So this is an interesting, Just I thought it was just an interesting parallel because they beam down to this planet, go, this isn't suitable for humans, and then leave. But humans are very adaptable animals. Yes. <laughs> That's basically our thing. We, we are unspecialists. Yeah, we, we can fit a lot of niches when we need to. So the idea, like this place has breathable atmosphere, like, you can probably figure out how to eat something. Basic coverings seem to keep you clear of most of the dangerous plants in this one area. So, you didn't spend any time trying. Yeah, so, <laughs> you, got, you guys are quitters. You should go back to the, the, the acid plant and, enjoy, and figure out how to enjoy it for yourself. Mm -hmm. Until the Romulans show up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that could be an issue. I mean, you could. We don't know. 
you know, maybe the Romulans will steer clear of this planet because they're like, yeah, we don't want to deal with it ourselves. I mean, I'm not saying it would be great, but people, people have adapted to live in places people should not be able to live. It's like, oh, hello, like northern Greenland. Hello, middle of the Sahara Desert. Hello, random atoll in the middle of the Pacific. The thing that we consider the basis of Western civilization was founded on a poisonous fruit tree. Mm -hmm. You can't eat olives. Olives are poisonous. Whoops. But they became the basis for all of Greek and Roman civilization. (laughs) Because if you cure them in the right way, they stop being poisonous. So, suddenly we got this little treat. But we have to get that, yeah, get it to that point before we, uh, you know, indulge ourselves. Mm-hmm. So you can you can figure out this stuff. I, I, I'm reminded a little bit of uh, the uh, the Dragon Riders of Pern. Um, it's a uh, science fiction that has dragons in it, so that's cool. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, the but some of the things that sort of happens in the series there. Uh, is they a, a, a mix of adapting local life as well as adapting the life that they brought with them, including you know people to a certain degree, to be able to you know uh, more properly live on this new planet, and uh, yeah, and so there's you know, you know a bit of a transition over the long, you know, long timeline of you know the civilization on, the, on this planet that you know you kind of have cows as we know them now, and then cows how they are like. In the later stories and things like that, they're mostly the same, but they definitely have a few differences. You know, you know, a lot heavier coats, a different sort of builds, and things like that. And that's just kind of what they need to do in order to make it, you know, be able to, you know, adapt to this new uh, new environment with, you know, similar but different sort of life on it. Yeah, those are really fun books if you haven't read them. They don't, as far as I remember, the sci-fi stuff doesn't actually get introduced to like book three or four, but. So, shh, sorry, I, I mentioned the sci-fi. <laughs> um, but um, I guess another thing that uh, I guess you know, this episode reminds me of as far as, you know, alien planets and biology and things is chirality. Who's chi? Chirality. Basically, it's a, it's how you arrange molecules in either a left-handed or right-handed sort of fashion. Yeah. Um, and I could go into a whole long thing about that, but uh, yeah, just real quick here, uh, the there is a possibility that yeah, in throughout the universe, the chirality of uh, chemicals that you, that will pop up due to life on uh, any random planet will have a left or right-handed sort of arrangement, and there could be something that basically looks exactly like sugar on this alien planet, but is backwards, and so it's not going to be necessarily very good for us. Because the way the molecules interact are going to not be like sugar. So if our our, the chirality in our own bodies was completely flipped over would be fine, but because you know we, we, it's not the case, we're going to be have a little bit of issue. Uh, and I, I guess the most telling example of this is actually uh, you know uh, lactose. You know, I know there's people you know on Earth today that are lactose intolerant, but think of that. Except everyone's now going to die instantly with it, sort of hmm. stuff. <laughs> It goes from being, you know, it can make some people kind of sick to, yeah, this is deadly poison now. So be careful about space milk. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, it's just, you know, it's sort of one of those things you have to sort of be kind of aware about with uh, sci-fi biology, which wasn't really thought about back in the 60s. So, and kind of still isn't, but you know. This is why you can't have hard sci-fi. 
You step onto an alien planet and die instantly because what you've read as oxygen is the opposite. It's left-handed oxygen, and now you're dead. <laughs> oh, this is oxygen. This is, well, it is kind of oxygen. It's ozone, but, you know. <laughs> Whoops. Yeah, so that's all I got. <laughs> okay. Well, we're running a little over, and that was all I had, too. So I think maybe it's time to go from random depressing stuff to the galaxy's favorite game show. <laughs> Hey everybody! Welcome to the game show parts of the show. We got some uh, some, some really psychedelic uh, you know contestants this week, and uh, they are I, I think they're still paying attention. They're they're a little little uh, far out, man. But anyway, let's start handing out some prizes here because we got some points scored up, and we can uh, finally get to that stage of this today's episode. Our first award, our first prize, is the Guitar Hero Prize, which goes to Adam for being our musical core for this episode. What does he win, Gepwin? I think this might be more of a prize for us. We get to watch Adam perfect through the fire and flames on hard mode. Oh, sweet. Those are reference people in the early thousands will get. Yes. Uh, I've managed to finish it on hard, but not expert. It's kind of hard. <laughs> anyway, our second uh, award is the Wrong Kind of Acid Award prize, which goes to the group of whole, the whole group of the space hippies for opting for that one planet where everything's apparently acidic, but not in the way they, they kind of want, not in the far out way. What do they win, Gipwin? I think they all get the right kind of acid and some therapy. After all this, they'll probably be way better set up to go to literally any other paradise planet. Yes. We should also just give them the mushroom planet. Yeah. They'll be fine there. Here, go hang on the mushroom planet. We'll be fun. You'll have a lot of fun. <laughs> Our uh, third prize today is the TV Love Story Prize, which goes to Chekhov and Irina, because isn't it so sad that the fun-loving Chekhov is now a super serious guy that's a foil to the free spirit? And yeah... This whole dynamic doesn't really make any damn sense, except in terms of bad TV love stories. What do, what do they win, Gepwin? Chekhov wins a haircut, because he doesn't deserve the teenage sex appeal anymore after this one. <laughs> Chekhov, it's time for you to turn to uh, Bester from uh, Babylon 5. Anyway, our last prize <laughs> is the medical malpractice prize. Uh, I know uh, Severin's not a medical doctor, but he gets this one all the same, because he's a doctor, and he, you know, because um, you know, he's so eager to go to a planet and just kind of spread a deadly plague to anyone who might be there. So what does he win here for potentially, you know, killing off an entire civilization, get one? Sovereign wins state-sponsored socialist care because they kept calling him Typhoid Mary, and we didn't have time to get into it, but the only actual problem with Typhoid Mary is that they told her to not cook anything anymore, which is her only means of livelihood, and they didn't give her any other way to live. Yeah. So, um, she kind of kept cooking, and people kept dying. Also, raw stuff. She cooked raw stuff, which was the only problem. If her specialty hadn't been a raw dessert, everyone would have been fine. Yeah. So, uh, maybe, uh, you know, some socialized healthcare, uh, some cooking classes, and maybe, I don't know, some beans. A planet where that's not going to be worrying about any of that sort of getting people sick. But then he's dead anyway. Anyway, so get put <laughs> Go ahead, take me out of here before I run out of things to say. As thank you for all of our contestants. I hope you've had fun time on the acid planet. Woo! <laughs> and thank you all for joining us here on the galaxy's favorite game show! Woo! Woo!
Well then, we uh, managed to get past the acid planet, and uh, we're, are we going to another planet now? Yeah, we're going to the clouds. The clouds? We're going to float above the sky? Yeah, next is the cloud minders. Hmm. Which I keep misreading as the cloud miners, because I guess I've got Star Wars in the brain. Yes. Wait, so we're going to run into Lando Calarizian, and oh, he's going to like be, be more suave than everyone else on the show combined? Yeah, what was what was Billy D. Williams doing during this time period? <laughs> he must have been in things before Star Wars. Yeah. You know, I don't want to take the time right now to you know mess up my tabs, but yeah, maybe I can look that up. <laughs> All right, so what is this? Something about meeting a woman when they're looking for a shipment of a mineral and... Something, mines, young woman, hostage situation. There's like a city of the clouds, and there's uh, some people that are like attacking it, and there's this whole division between the, the, the upper people and the lower people, and this is just Metropolis, isn't it? Yeah, sounds starting to sound like it. Oh my god, mm. so many guest stars. <laughs> I guess they like realized, wait, we still have a budget for this season? Holy crap. Barely, <laughs> I guess. Yeah, I think I think barely, but yeah, the cloud minders. Where they mind the clouds. Just mind that cloud. Mind the gap. <laughs> that first step is a doozy. You know. As um I'm suddenly having flashbacks to Chrono Trigger. Hmm. I just I just do not like the sound of led by a young woman. That doesn't sound like it's gonna go well. Uh Princess Amadala, maybe, if we're gonna go back to Star Wars. Uh <laughs> Yeah, I wouldn't trust Kirk near Amidala. Yeah, yeah, that was that'd be a bad time. The whole thing was already creepy with the weird Anakin thing. We don't have time to get into that. <laughs> yeah, are we ever gonna cover uh, the Phantom Menace? Probably not. There's not really a lot of point of it, honestly. Okay, we've stopped. Sto- we stopped talking about Star Trek half an hour ago. Yes. So, <laughs> thank you all for joining us this week and we can go do something with clouds next time on watchers of tomorrow next time on watchers of tomorrow time for some class warfare you have been listening to watchers of tomorrow a podcast on science fiction media find and follow watchers of tomorrow on podbean youtube spotify iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, Spreader, Digital Podcast, and perhaps many more to come. If you enjoy our podcast, make sure to subscribe for more. And where possible, make sure to rate your experience or leave us a review. You may find Gepwin on youtube.com slash Gepwin and Twitter at Gepwin. You may find me, Dr. Isix, on youtube.com slash Dr. Isix and Twitter at IzixLP. Music is Waveform and Mori's Principle, both by DRKRN. You can also check out the Watchers of Tomorrow Discord channel. Make sure to share the experience with your friends, family, enemies, and alien overlords. If you feel you are suffering from transporter syndrome, please be aware that the next time you step off the transporter, that you, that is now, no longer exists.